0: Welcome to the Songs with Substance podcast. I'm Ren, I'm a musician, and on this show, I interview indie artists about their experience of the music industry and their perspective on the creative process. Today's guest is Sarah Rossi, a performer, producer, composer, and educator based in Montreal. She writes beautifully ethereal, magical music that's influenced by jazz and life-processed electronics. In this episode, we talked about the impact academia can have on creativity, the power of somatics and ancestral trauma therapy as a means of resolving certain psychosomatic symptoms, particularly as they relate to the voice, the effects of aging as a woman in the music industry, and the lack of representation um, for women making music over the age of 50. And of course, we talked about a wealth of other subjects. I'm not going to list them all. I'm going to let you discover them in this episode. Um, But do give it a listen and leave me a comment if you enjoyed it. Funny how to feel safe Sarah Rossi, welcome to the podcast. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, actually, but because I saw that you've been so busy, I like was holding back from suggesting another thing for you to do, so I was like, I'm just going to wait a few weeks, <laughs> and then you graciously <laughs> accepted. So for the first question, I think for a little bit of context, I'd love to hear a bit more about just your overarching experience with music, where you got started, and where you're at now.
1: Yeah, uh been a long journey. I, uh, like many people, started childhood piano lessons when I was like eight or nine. And uh, I was quite instantly just smitten and fell mm-hmm. in love so deeply with with this instrument. Kind of been writing songs since the beginning of time. My cousins would tell me that when I was a toddler, I was just like making up little jingles to annoy people and <laughs> get points across. So that's kind of been a big part of me since forever, I would say. Um, and then came the the big decision of, do I study music in university? Like, what am I going to do with this in my young adult life? And um, I went on to study jazz and Black American music. Um, so I guess in the years since it's been this nice combination of like my classical piano background, uh jazz, black American music traditions, improvisation, and uh now I've gotten a little bit nerdy into this like electroacoustic <laughs> wizardry setup uh that we can maybe talk about at some point. Um, so yeah, I I I don't know if that answers the question, but it's it's been this this evolving bubble since since my childhood, I would say.
0: There's a lot that I want to ask you about because, of course, like, because we ran in the same circles a little bit in Montreal, I, I've been so aware of your trajectory for so many years. And so there's so much that I want to ask you about. But you mentioned how you went to school for jazz. Mm-hmm. And so I think something that would be interesting is just to get your experience of what it's like to take a passion and bring it into academia.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a big one. I'm still digesting what it means to kind of have been, been in an environment uh, surrounded by people who are, for the most part, doing what they love and, and given all these facilities and resources to just create um, all day. But of course, with the trade-off of sometimes having to do it in a way that isn't you know, where you would naturally go or, or directly in line with your authentic wants and needs. Um, So I'm still digesting that I'm a couple of years out of school now and I'm trying to kind of recalibrate. Um, But there are definitely like, you know, a lot of strange pressures put on the art um, when you're trying to do it as a profession, but also keep it as this healing cathartic healing force in your life. Um, I do a lot of therapy. that is the most grounding thing to, to yeah. keep on track because I think as artists, we have questions every day of that really will determine, you know, big things in our futures. We're just constantly questioning and making decisions. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely not easy, but I think that um kind of coming back to the self and, and doing a lot of self-work, self-development stuff has been just the grounding anchor in all of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a very interesting theme and I do feel like it's like, diving right into the deep end with these questions like right off the bat but you know you mentioned the complexity of like maintaining your art form as a therapeutic emotional healing method all while learning to commercialize your work Mm -hmm. in sort of like a capitalistic society that wants like endless growth and like profit and things that seem so antithetical to um, emotional healing So I know this is a big question, and I don't imagine that you have like a final answer on this, but how are you navigating those sort of polar opposite tensions?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think every day I define that a little bit differently. Um, I try to really structure my playtime, like emotional release or just pure fun to not put pressure on every musical space to, uh, you know, generate some kind of content or result. Uh, I did a really amazing residency in Maine a few weeks ago with some friends who are also my bandmates, and we didn't go in with any expectations of of creating something. It was purely for fun. And I think that keeping that in check is really important, Um, you know, under these capitalist pressures to to make content and dazzle the people and like keep reinventing yourself in the public eye, like every 25 seconds. Uh, For me, that's not sustainable. Um, but what I try to do is, is kind of tap into that lower, I mean, I've done a lot of somatic work, so I'll just relate it to like the pelvis, the lower body, this sense of grounding, um, as much as possible, and then set some very necessary boundaries between like, okay, now I'm doing some admin, put on my producer hat, like go to a coffee shop and work on, you know, applications or or grants or, or invoices and paperwork, um, in a separate living space or like area so that's been really it's been like kind of kicking my butt as a person to do that because setting boundaries is is hard but i think that this profession kind of forces you to do that
0: (laughs) yeah especially when it's you know such a personal profession and a passion-based profession where the boundaries are so blurred like it's not you know (laughs) nine to five come home take off my shoes and like kick back you know it's this sort of perpetual you think about it in your sleep type of thing you know it just doesn't really go away (laughs) so I I know what you mean when I first heard about you you were in a band called Shire which is I think was your original project if I'm not mistaken which now you're more doing a solo thing it seems I mean obviously you have bandmates but it's like under your your name um Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know why you chose to make that transition from Shia to the Sarah Rossi project.
1: hmm It's a good question. Um, I think when I was younger, I was very seduced by the idea of a moniker. I was like, oh, I can just be this thing. And it's a little bit separate from who I am because I don't really know who I am yet. I think I was like 20 when I started that band. So I was intrigued by that. Um, I'd say that band was still largely kind of creatively directed by me. Although there were some more set members, at a certain point I started feeling, and I'm still trying to unpack all this and how to how to juggle this because I think as as we move through the art world and mature as artists, it's harder to define your entire being in one one little container. Uh, so I started getting more into jazz, uh, improvised music, interdisciplinary practice, and um, suddenly that container that that I had created um, for years that kind of was branded as this chamber pop uh, band um, in Quebec, mostly Uh, didn't really fit what I was doing anymore. So then you're faced with the question of, do I keep the container and modify it? Or do I just kind of start a new little flower pot elsewhere or try to define myself in more in more broad terms? Uh, And in jazz, a lot of the time you you perform under your name because there's a lot of kind of ad hoc ensembles that are created like this person this person this person um so I started doing that more and more and then at a certain point I just felt I guess empowered in my <laughs> mid-20s to be like hey I am Sarah Rossi this is who I am and I'm going to use that as my name and it still terrifies me honestly because I feel like oh, if I radically change to I don't know and dance and painting and other things like will people still understand that it's the same kind of a, a voice behind it but at that I, I will figure that out if and when i get there so <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah i love that topic too i actually like made a whole video essay about this about like multipotentialites, which is like another word for like mm-hmm. polymaths mm-hmm. and how challenging it can be when you're naturally oriented in that direction like you have so many passions and mm-hmm. you're not, not necessarily born a specialist in one thing. Yeah. So yeah, would you consider yourself that way as a multi-potentialite? Because you mentioned dance and painting and all this stuff.
1: The multi-potentialite. Uh, the <laughs> <not> very dramatic, <laughs> but it is no, Humble musician and nothing else. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, and, and I'm reflecting on this a lot, That it's almost silly to brand yourself as one type of creativity because the way we experience the world is inherently multi-sensory the way we move through the world and feel our feelings and all of these things. Like for me, that is so much more than sound and uh, giving myself the permission to be like, actually, I, I am going to do some video art or I am going to create, um, you know, some like animated things or, or move. That's been super liberating. And I think that those things maybe rub up against, oh, but you are a musician. Like you studied music um, a little more than I'd like. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to,
0: again, the whole idea of like art as a healing human thing versus Mm -hmm. art as a business, because this whole idea of picking one thing, the only thing it really benefits is your brand, like branding and marketing and all this stuff. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually benefit to pick only one thing doesn't necessarily benefit you as an individual, you know, so it's just this like endless, just back and forth all the time. You mentioned somatics earlier in in the conversation. And I, I love that you mentioned that because that's something I've had to learn as well. And it's su- such an underrated thing. It's just truly like being connected to what your body's feeling. You know, it seems so easy, but mm-hmm. we don't realize how often we're not connected and how often we're distracting ourselves from our bodily sensations. So uh, yeah, I'm curious to know how you found out about somatics, like what led you to, to find that?
1: Interestingly, uh, when I was studying voice, in my undergrad, jazz voice, I would keep losing my voice. <laughs> so I'd get chronic laryngitis like every, every month or two, like just totally mute. And I went to see basically the top voice specialist in Montreal, the ENT doctor. Uh, and they were like, nothing is wrong with you. <laughs> and I was like, I am studying voice. I'm a vocalist. I have years of training in this. And I keep like some some connection, there must be something there, right? Because anatomically or physiologically, there's nothing uh, visible on all the tests that I did. So I was like, this is very strange. And I turned out that I was in an environment that was very emotionally violent at times. I was like one of very few uh, non-men in the program. Uh, it's a very white colonial institution, as we know, McGill. So being in this environment was causing a stress response that just completely seized up and caused a lot of inflammation in my throat area. So that was the first little connection that was made. that was very, very clear. And then at a certain point I started, uh, I I did a a workshop with Meredith Monk, who is um, kind of like the pioneer of voice and body interdisciplinary practice. And she's very in tune with those things. So that was formative. And then through that, I found myself in Berlin for a month studying well doing a residency um, for voice in movement. So I was actually the only person who was trained in music in this group of like 30, uh, mostly movement artists. And I learned so much from just being in space with them and how in touch they are and how you know, like no sensation is, is too small to ignore and to listen to when um, you're just doing that as your primary practice. So, yeah, I think all those things really accumulated. And eventually I found um, books like, you know, The Body Keeps the Score and Gabor Mate's research that is all just centered on this mind-body connection and how it can be very powerful or very detrimental if you're really not listening to yourself. So, yeah. Um, i'm still in it very deeply i love it i think it's so informative and uh that's how i listen to myself and my limits and my boundaries is like through my pelvis and gut now it's like
0: yeah yeah it's so funny Um, it's not funny but it's very strange what you're saying because i had a almost identical experience actually with my voice Mm -hmm. as well in montreal Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um for me it was it was the same like for me, I had lost my voice kind of completely even for speaking, like I couldn't use it for several weeks. It was just kind of a nightmare and obviously it affected my mental health a great deal because it's like mm-hmm. I couldn't communicate. And I'm sure it was like a mental health psychosomatic symptom anyway. So it just sort of exacerbated an existing problem. But I had the same situation where I went to specialists and they couldn't see anything and they were just like, well, get used to it. And I was just like, Thanks. So I was just by myself Mm -hmm. having to figure out where this was coming from and like what I could do to help it. And I did some speech therapy exercises that helped. But ultimately, I kept sort of accumulating these psychosomatic symptoms until I was Mm -hmm. forced to realize that or forced, I was led to the realization that it was my nervous system that was like completely dysregulated. And I didn't know how to regulate my emotions. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to be in my body which is wild because I always considered myself a very self-aware person. But the truth is that I intellectualized my emotions. So I was very good Mm -hmm. at like analyzing them and writing about them and like writing music about them even. But I wasn't good Mm -hmm. at feeling them and my tolerance for them was very low. And somatics has helped me a great deal with that. So if anyone out Mm -hmm. there is listening and has weird psychosomatic symptoms like that, serious (laughs)
1: serious So <laughs> powerful and i think and i'm just grateful for that but i i mean i learned that lesson the hard way in a sense but it made me realize just how important it is to really really be listening which i think as artists is all we're trying to do you know day to day it's like i'm listening for this signal i'm trying to respond to this and and keeping our ears as wide open like in the physical sensation sense but also you know sonically yeah wow fascinating that we both lived that
0: sure yeah years. that's really that's wild when yeah. did, what year was it that this happened to you because maybe we were both just like going through this at the same time
1: uh 2013 to 2014
0: yeah mine was a bit later I I took the baton from you mine was like 2016 <laughs> or something I would say How do you feel that being in touch with your body that way, like you mentioned this um, residency we did in Berlin, um, how do you feel that that affected your relationship to music overall and the sound of your music?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think this can be also part of the trap of studying music in school is that things are very um, sectioned off. Like, you are a voice, you are a singer, that is what you do. Um, Here's your role. Do not venture too far beyond that because there's no place for you in the system if you do that. So as someone who came in as a multi-instrumentalist and was very quickly branded as just singer, uh, I tended to, as time went on, I would lose more and more kind of connection with my body because, you know, traditional singer role, you stand there, you kind of look nice and you you scooby-doo, like you do the jazz thing. Um... So I was growing kind of more and more disconnected from my body, which makes absolutely no sense because the voice is, your instrument is your body. Um, So moving with these dancers and movement artists just gave me permission to be like, oh, can I vibrate through my heels? Can I I feel my breath like from a much deeper place? Can I create sound that is sourced from the movement itself and not necessarily coming from my brain uh, in this conscious way? So it just opened up so many entry points into creation and and then this deep listening through the body is, is such a big part of that. Um, and the plethora of information that is available when you start listening and I've done a lot of ancestral work as well. So tapping into those stories that live in our bodies that aren't even ours, <laughs> it's just been extremely enriching and deepening in my practice. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's so interesting. I really resonate with so much of what you're saying. I feel like I've been on such a similar journey. And this question maybe is to I mean, I don't know, I'll ask it, but if it's uncomfortable to answer, obviously you don't have to. But you're talking about, you know, your ancestral stories that you're learning to sort of unravel and probe into. And I'm wondering if there's a a story that you've lived with or a limiting belief about yourself that you've carried that you're currently learning to undo?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think um, in a general sense, it relates to uh, what we were talking about before with the kind of the throat closing up, being silenced. I've been tracing a lot of that back to uh, my ancestry, my Lebanese ancestors who came over as refugees Uh, around 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago. Um, So this theme of silencing has just been extremely present in my family lineage, you know, people, especially at that time, if you come over and you're a different religion, different race, and you have to change all of that to the best of your abilities, even though it will never work, you know, you can never just become white all of a sudden. Um, But this idea of having to change or conform around these ideas simply to survive has been very, uh, I guess, present. And I'm currently trying to unravel that, like, how can I not silence what is authentically needing to be said through my body, through my voice? Yeah, speaking truth to some of those stories that that were largely just a lot of just horrific treatment towards uh, women. And, um, I feel like I carry all of that with me still. So, so the throat closing up really, it felt like it was my life, but it also felt like it was the lives of, of people of past that, that, um, you know, lived those extreme excruciating conditions of erasure.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to hear this story because, you know, there's something so beautiful about the fact that you were born a singer, you know, you were born to use your voice whilst carrying the lineage of people who had been silenced and so in some way it's like part of your life's karma from my interpretation is like learning to use your voice in that way um, to liberate that whole lineage you know Um, and it's interesting because you just mentioned before about how when you were in school you were considered just a singer and so in a way like even though you were using your voice you weren't actually being vocal in like the larger sense Yep. How do you feel that that has changed since you've been in school?
1: Hmm. Well, I just hold it with, with great responsibility and care to to have a microphone and be able to speak to people, to send messages to people, to share stories. Um, I think like the gravity and the beauty of that is it was understated when you're kind of standing behind a set of music charts and navigating this right, wrong, binary um, yeah, and all of the, the kind of self-growth work and self-discovery and and realizing that, yes, every time I open my mouth, like I, I'm holding the lineage, the legacy of my ancestors and people who whose stories were not able to be told. Um, so I, I see the performance space, both kind of when I'm alone at my apartment or in a public space, as is, is a very um sacred environment where you know these past stories can come forward these these emotions that i've worked very hard to access and understand can be shared with other people that's what i'll say about that
0: yeah and you also mentioned the female part of your lineage or the being a woman you know the pressures that have come with that in your lineage and that you're now carrying also um which leads me to another whole conversation I wanted to ask you about your experience being a woman in this industry and yeah. What are the challenges that that presents? Have there been any opportunities at all? Or has it just been like pure challenge?
1: Oh, it's interesting. I mean, right now I consider my gender to be a little fluid. So I'm, I'm exploring that right now. Um, But I'll speak to, I guess the experience of how people, have maybe treated or perceived me in in various spaces. I think when I was starting, and, and part of the reason my first band stopped was due to sexist forces, uh, because at that time, there was a lot less public conversation about, like, oh, we need to curate the equal representation, or we need to have these discussions, you know, as programmers or as bookers, or even as other musicians. Um, I won't go into all the details, but just the horrific sexist environments and unsafe environments that we were put in as as young, um, young 20 somethings. I had a, a woman drummer in my band. So it was basically her and I like trying to navigate these very male spaces. And sometimes they would be predatory and sometimes they would just be, you know, condescending or just, oh, we don't take you seriously. You're just like two little girls starting a band. Which you know, in hindsight, you can see very clearly, but in the moment, you just you truly think that everyone's working from the best intentions, and you think you think you have a chance, but you're being kind of pushed into this other other category, where you're not you know paid for gigs, or not taken seriously, or just yeah. So there's a lot of that stuff, and I'm I'm lear- I've learned so much and had to grow really a set of resilient armor uh, over that. I'm still processing it, but. Um, I think nowadays I feel a lot more hope because people are trying to curate more responsibly. Um, the conversations are happening. There are different people doing those jobs of, of booking and, um, I guess gatekeeping or gate gate opening. So I have hope in that sense. Um, but it has not been easy and I like to remember almost every day that it is a gift to be doing this. And the fact that I am kind of snowplowing uh a lot of a lot of toxic conventions still in my day-to-day is gonna make more room for the people coming after me. So it gives me a lot of hope to to think about it as more of a holistic like equity snowplow for people to come and I thank the people who did that ahead of me. But it's it's a very slow moving process. I would say.
0: <laughs> Actually, this segues perfectly into another thing I wanted to ask you, because if I understand correctly, you teach as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure like the age range of the people that you teach, but I, my understanding is that some of them are a bit younger, or like from the sort of the newer generations uh, emerging into the music scene. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know if you've noticed a difference in their approach to the industry, but also like the creative process? Have you noticed any differences in them?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, <clears throat> I really notice the changing norms for masculinity the most. I'm noticing that for the most part, most of the boys or m- male identifying students that I have who are, they're all college age, so like probably 18, 17 to 20 approximately, are just a lot more in touch with their humanity they have been given a space that I think you know, people older than that, it, it just tapers off as, as the age range goes up from what I've noticed. Um, and I think that that is a true measure of, of progress because if people in the most privileged positions can be experiencing empathy and, and relating to others, then it seems like it's, a, it's an open playing field. Um, a lot more space is created. So as an educator, I, I feel that it's a branch of my creative practice to be to be critically looking at the ways in which we educate and hold creative space for people. And I feel really grateful that I can put all of this knowledge and ex- lived experience, kind of reflect on it and, and input it back into to the younger generation to not repeat the things that I had to go through um in school so it's it's very interesting but i really i think that the the folks who grew up with the internet as we know it today where it's you know representation is just like a little google search away and it has immense power and i see that in the art that's being created where it's this kind of more global perspective of oh like i am this identity and i can connect with these people and i'm informed by this practice in a in a broader sense than than folks who grew up uh, without that or at the beginning of that,
0: it's interesting too, because these are the generations that like you say are born with the internet as it is today. so obviously it has so many advantages um, in the way of having knowledge being so accessible. but then also there's this sort of social media pressure which I also wanted to ask you about your relationship to to social media and sort of the algorithmic overlords that just sort of mm. seem to dictate like who gets to be seen and heard and like you know yeah. it can be such an overwhelming territory to navigate especially as an artist so yeah curious to know your relationship with that
1: i got really good advice from uh my friend eve parker finley and she's like she's kind of like an influencer comedian musician incredible person and she was kind of driving the point home of you have to make your relationship with social media sustainable for you <laughs> so there's no template of oh you have to post every day you have to do this do this i like for me that would not be sustainable um, but i've adapted kind of, oh, I'm doing this thing, I'm really in the moment, I'm loving it, I'm super excited by the idea of documenting it and then sharing it for the purposes of connecting with people. And sometimes that stems from like an equity place of oh, this would be super great to share because if I was a younger person seeing this, I would realize that it's possible to to sing in this way or to speak in this way. Um, and sometimes it's purely for the you know the creative joy of oh, this musical thing is so cool. I share for the purpose of of connecting. And when I made that really really clear in my brain. It took off a lot of the mental load of oh your brand oh they're this oh this is how you should talk or this is what you should do i think the notion of being authentic gets a little bit blurry on the internet because we have time to you know write the draft and people are going to see it and respond to it and it's a little bit different than simply having a conversation with this low embodied pelvic energy that uh, we were talking about so i try to just channel that as much as possible, even though it's um, kind of a one way street of, of consumption sometimes. But yeah, the excitement around sharing and connecting with people drives that for me.
0: Yeah. This is uh, kind of unrelated, but I would be curious to know also what your biggest learning curve has been. Um, in learning to sort of commercialize your art? What's been the greatest challenge that you've had to sort of overcome?
1: Oh, I don't know if I've overcome this. I feel like it's a constant constant reinvention like every day. But um, the idea of setting really healthy boundaries between the creation process and the promotion, diffusion, booking, future planning, um, more administrative marketing brain, that's been really difficult, uh, but I think the, the best thing that has happened in all of that is um, I have a few circles of musicians who we will meet up kind of on a monthly or bi-weekly basis and just have a industry co-working session. So while most normal people have like office and HR people and colleagues, or they can just show up and, and work and ask questions, we created that um, because we felt A dire need to just have this um, collaborative space to share ideas. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, so and so got a weird email from this booker in Toronto. Another person has had a weird experience with them too. It just validates the process and makes it less about this individual load. Um, we do it with you know grant writing revision or oh what do you think of this album art photo or this epk and just use our collective knowledge as a community to to empower one another and there is a lot of knowledge there that i think it's uh unexplored when we're just alone at our desks like wanting to cry
0: <laughs> yeah i'm alone at my desk wanting to cry often. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so i can see how you're meeting
0: a need there because also it's like in this field especially when you're an emerging artist it's like you have to wear so many hats and do so many things and you're so alone in it because you don't have the metrics enough to sort of have help really and so you're just kind of like doing it all by yourself and the overwhelm it's like I have to use my somatic tools all the yeah. time and I probably don't do it enough because it's like I feel sort of the pressure of it boiling over so often mm-hmm. um Also for me, so first of all, I wanted to sort of give you props for that project. And like, I would love to maybe do something equivalent here because bringing community together in this is just such an important thing. So love that initiative. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about ageism. So we talked about sexism and all the fun stuff, but also part of the reason why I feel such pressure... Is because despite the fact that I know, like, I'm young, you know, like one of my biggest pet peeves is when people in their like 20s make jokes about like how old they are. And my grandpa's like 85, like he's actually old, and like I feel like he would just be psyched to be like in his late 20s, early 30s. So I don't mean to suggest that I think I'm like super old or anything, but it's part of my point actually that even though I'm 26, about to turn 27, I know that that's young, and yet I feel this like real pressure to sort of get things moving because that's it's starting to feel like too old to be new in the creative field you know what I mean too Mm -hmm. old to sort of still be emerging and not have like anything really settled and like really properly figured out yet like Mm -hmm. it feels too old to be starting out and I know that that's a limiting belief and like certainly is one that I'm constantly trying to bulldoze and like work despite having But I'm curious to know if you've had that pressure feeling as well, like how you've navigated that or if it's just not been the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I feel like when I was younger, I felt it more. I was like, I got to figure this out. I got to drop out of school. I got to be famous by 23. Like, I got to do all this stuff. I feel that as I've gotten older, that pressure to perform and to be successful in this very, like, measured sense of the word has faded out a little bit despite i guess the irony of having less time remaining in my time on this earth um because i've really really focused my efforts on connecting with people more so than trying to climb this never-ending ladder of an elusive notion of success like whatever that means so uh but i've experienced it on both ends like i've i've been in spaces where sometimes i'm perceived as much younger than i am and they'll be like oh you're a little young for this like come back back in a few years and i'm like i have a master's degree i'm 30 years old like i don't understand how much longer i should wait to be booked by you you know Mm -hmm. um so it works in both directions um so at that point i'm like i can't win you know there's gender pressures on like like women and femme people to to like look young forever but then you're not taken seriously if you're too young in some spaces so it's I've just stopped trying to fight against that and like focused on myself and my community and my own learning and growing and connecting. And that has been infinitely more sustainable than trying to chase like youth or maturity, right? Because like at the end of the day, it's such a subjective label that someone slaps on you to try and understand who you are. So i love it it's great yeah
0: (laughs) i'm like i'm trying to be in that same headspace because i think part of the reason why i feel such a pressure is like is maybe mostly like a female experience i'm not sure Mm -hmm. but like because there's such a pressure for for women or like female identifying people to sort of look young and like presentable and cute and like kind of hot but not too much and this whole (laughs) thing obviously that's like kind of You never reach it but youth and prettiness and image seem so vital to Mm -hmm. sort of get your project to be marketable that like i don't know i feel like sometimes i just feel like i need to just quickly get my project off the ground while i'm not not like all wrinkled up knowing that i'll still be making music when i'm like an old woman but it's like i'd rather not have to market my work by then i just want to like put it out to whoever's already listening and just like Mm -hmm. live my best life you know so, there's all these limiting beliefs that I have too around like image and what I'm supposed to look like to be marketable. And just, it's yeah. just, it's an exhausting uh, uh, topic. But, but anyway. That's, that
1: goes back to that thing I was saying with the equity snowplower. It's like you are pushing ahead. Like, we don't have representation for the most part. I have a couple of mentors who are really dear to my heart who are like still publicly making music in their 50s uh, who are women. And I'm like, there's like three in my life <laughs> compared to the, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of yeah. men who are still in it because they haven't <laughs> been struck down by these weird pressures yeah. to, like, like You look at the Rolling
0: wrestler. Stones, like the Rolling right. Stones were on tour, I think now they just released a new album or whatever. And it's just like, in, in a certain way, they get to be timeless, you know, mm-hmm. And I like I love figures like Joni Mitchell, because I still go on her Instagram when I need that kind of inspiration. I'm like, okay, I'll be like Joni Mitchell, like I'll sit when I'm like 80 or whatever, I'll just sit on my little throne on stage and I'll sing with like a community of people around and I'll just like, you know, and again, she's another multi-potentialite example because she paints too. So I I saw an interview of her, she talks about how like the creative process never ends for her because as soon as she's run out of like musical ideas, she'll just paint for a while and then go back to music and then paint. And So I think shout out to multi-potentialites and women making music after 50 because we need you and let's yeah let's make music when we're 50 just to like at least have a bit of a an example to put out there
1: i joke with my friend claire devlin who's like an amazing tenor sax player who plays like the I call it Claire Shreds. She'll, she'll just like go on this crazy like chaos world. And I just love it. And we laugh sometimes about how we're going to do this when we're 80. <laughs> I've never seen like 80 year old ladies just like walking out <laughs> in free jazz.
0: That would be <laughs> so cool. Just to right? see like an 80 year old woman shredding on the saxophone. I would, so, I would pay hundreds. Me too. Oh
1: but it doesn't exist yet. And I think that realizing that we are actually pushing that edge, you know, as like millennials aging through this weird gender force field of like, we're going to be creating things that haven't been created before by people that age, because there just wasn't space historically. So I think thinking about it, you know, through a global system perspective of where are we on this equity timeline as people are age, like doing what we do, and finding empowerment in that, because, you know, like I see it even in my students who are you know 10 plus years younger than me and and they they have respect for me as an artist in a way that like men my age did not respect my like women TAs when I was in university I'm just like okay like 10 years did this we're the snow plow we are pushing forward and we're gonna like create some music that hopefully speaks as music and not just as this visual brand of like beautiful face because I don't think that that is you know that's not a sustainable source of of anything, right? Just leads to more shame. Yeah,
0: (laughs) totally. It's not sustainable for the artist, but also it sort of Mm -hmm. like gets in the way of the art because if art is supposed to be something that connects you to an audience, then like the the sort of like perfect, pretty, flawless, never a hair out of place thing, it gets Mm -hmm. in the way of your humanity. So you can't like fully connect on a raw, vulnerable, like emotional level with the audience that you're trying to make art for. And yeah, I mean, there's this whole topic that I find interesting about how in popular culture, we like venerate the image of the artist more than the art itself, you know, like we sort of idolize celebrity more than their creative work, which is a whole topic. (laughs) And you mentioned, you know, um, success and how success is such an elusive term to sort of define. So again, it's like a big question, but what does success look like for you? And how do you know when you're successful in your creative attempts?
1: It's a feeling, you know, it's like I, I, I can feel it a lot more strongly in a performance setting, which is why I think I am so scared of releasing music. And <laughs> I have like two albums that are finished and I need to, I need to put them out at some point. Yeah. Um, but there's like a physical feeling and that's where that kind of somatic feedback comes in where it's, oh, I did this thing. I actually feel a sense of relief. I feel a sense of peace. I feel a sense of alignment. And, um, you know, if there's people around observing and I can sense their energy and there's a kind of reciprocal exchange there, for me, that feels successful in some way. Uh, I think we are bogged down by these metrics. You know, social media can be so toxic because you see actual numbers that reflect like well, you could equate them to success on some level. It's like, oh, a lot of people like this thing, therefore success. Even though I wasn't as connected to it artistically, for example, Um, I'm trying to really be wary of that and take that really, really lightly. And I'm honestly like not look as much as I can, um, but put my best foot forward and say this felt really good for me. So maybe that feeling that that liberated Authentic strand that I've worked so, so hard to uncover and, and to detangle from all the other stuff uh, will speak. Um, so that's how I feel artistically on the industry side. I, I'm still figuring that out because, you know, part of me is like, oh, you should have a label. You should have a booking agent. You should have all these these things that mean that you are successful because you've been doing music for 10 years. And then there's a part of me that's like, you know what, I actually, I'm content connecting with people and I trust that if I just keep putting out stuff that I care about that things will happen the way they need to um yeah so so that's it like it goes back to all the somatic feedback and that's been my my saving grace honestly the past few years
0: yeah yeah, yeah I resonate with that a lot I think I'm, I'm starting to sort of equate success with emotional fulfillment versus Mm -hmm. like metrics which is a hard thing to sort of like undo in your mind but I was just thinking today as I was like writing out these questions that I wanted to ask you I was like what and I asked myself this a lot like what success is for me but it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying and I think it has to do with just knowing that I tried everything and I spent my whole life like trying to meet my fullest creative potential whatever that looks like and like if the fullest creative potential that I could do is not like particularly successful on a metric level I know like in my gut as I say it that like I would die peacefully because it's like (laughs) whatever like I fulfilled my life purpose like maybe my life purpose wasn't to be like this big deal but at least I just gave everything that I could to just like meet my edge and just keep pushing the boundary of my creative potential as far as I possibly could Mm -hmm. and now I can just like rest you know so that's what I'm trying to how I'm trying to approach this but so much easier said than done
1: oh yeah Um, it's a daily practice you know because we you even know, like wake up in the morning, see all these numbers and be like, oh, they really like this thing I did. It's like that actually doesn't matter. So take a step back, do some breathing, meditate, come back into your body instead of this like little ticking. Am I good enough? A uh, little shame demon that we're all kind of fighting. And, and then, yeah, I think recovering those, those, like, those messages from our bodies gives us a lot of stability and grounding through these external storms of Metrics, notifications, and
0: oh yeah. I mean, it is so tough because it's true that it's a challenging thing to not throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to personal development stuff. Because, because when I whip out my phone and I look at notifications that I have, and like I get that rush of dopamine, I tend to be like, I mean, I am having to unlearn this, but I tend to to have that instant reaction, which is normal because it's like a reptilian, like validation, survival, you know, fight mm-hmm. or flight thing almost that's happening. But I, but I can notice like my mind then being like judging myself for the fact that I enjoy that and judging myself for having an ego and like, and it just, it's just such a mess. So now I'm having to sort of embrace the fact that I have an ego and it's okay. And like, I can think beyond it and yeah, those likes felt good and it's okay. But like, it's not reflective of my personal value. Just like when it doesn't work, it feels bad and I can feel that grief in my body, but it doesn't mean that personally I have no value you know Mm -hmm. but yeah I just always want to throw out that nuance when it comes to personal development stuff because I so fell in the trap of like it's a or b it's like good or bad it's black and white like either you identify you don't identify either you're like on social media all the time or you're never on it at all like I was just so rigid and I'm having to be to accept like complexity but it's so hard to do
1: it's, it's hard, right? We, we tend to think yeah. of black and whites with all these things. And I think that, you know, that's that's where we fall into the traps of I am successful. I am not. I'm a failure. I'm succeeding, right? And it's always going to be a mixture of things, right? Like maybe you'll be successful in one way. And if you spin it another way, it's not successful. Like when I was younger, more so I really prioritized. I was like, oh, so-and-so has so many likes. like They're so popular. They have an agent. They are successful. And now, like, I, I, I realize that if I never kind of get to a point of, of like a hundred thousand people knowing who I am, I think I'm okay with that because I feel grounded. Like I have a nice community. I have music that is really meaningful. I'm doing all this like ancestral work and and kind of emotional opening stuff that, that just makes life more enjoyable and connected. And I think my younger self would have just judged that for being like, Oh, that's just not real art. Like you're not even, you're not even six, you're not even famous. Like, Which is it's a funny conversation to have with people who aren't in the arts world at all who just assume Mm -hmm. that you're trying to be famous if you're a musician. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it would be great if like a lot of people connected with the music that I'm creating, but to to make sure that I'm getting that dopamine from the actual music itself, more so than like, you know, the infinite doom scroll of, Oh, they like this or oh, this person's doing this, because that for me just kills it kills the the, the really gentle flame of of creativity that lives inside all of us if if taken in too big of a quantity. So it's all moderation. It's like constant just assessment of like, is this too much for me? Is this okay? Is this enough? Um, Which is why therapy has been really helpful to keep that radar very acute because you know, can be so distorted so quickly.
0: It is funny you mentioning how it's almost like artists are only valued if they have like a global, massive, like Michael Jackson, Taylor (laughs) Swift-esque impact. But if they have like a legitimate impact on their immediate community, even just like 100 people, it's like a lot. Like if 100 people are positively impacted by your work, I would say that that's a pretty good contribution to society Mm -hmm. and to humanity. But it's just so underappreciated. So... I get you on that. It's another thing to snowplow. Moving (laughs) forward. (laughs) Lots to Uh, snowplow. I
1: feel like every day I'm like, yeah, time to get on the snowplow. You wake up and you're you're in Montreal, Montreal,
0: so it's so perfect. You just look out the window. You're like inspired. (laughs) Yeah, like 70 centimeters of snow at your window. You're like, Uh, time to get on. So we're almost running out of time, but I want to ask you about your song, Hidden Heart. Yeah. This is the song that inspired me to reach out to you to like do this conversation because I love it so much. It's so delicate and like vulnerable and ethereal. Like it's just such a beautiful, magical song. So great job on the writing, but also the production. Beautiful. Um, And yeah, there's a lyric I wanted to read. It's the opening lyrics, which to me kind of my interpretation really define like the song. Funny how we shrink ourselves to feel safe, but within these walls we suffocate. So I feel like we sort of covered this theme already kind of at length without like necessarily doing it directly. But where did that lyric come from for you? And uh, yeah, what does this song mean to you?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, funny you bring that up. I think that that lyric specifically is is like the the summary of my first few years in therapy. (laughs) I was like, I keep shrinking myself and cutting parts of myself off to try and connect with these people, but that's actually gonna be the most detrimental thing I can do to like prevent real connection from happening and to feel very suffocated and stifled in my own little shell. So uh, I wrote this song the last time I was falling in love with somebody. And I was feeling like, oh, like maybe this time I will like show more of myself to this person and, and test the boundaries, the limits of connection um, with this heart that I had kept hidden in some ways. So it was just, um, I think I wrote the song kind of in one one dump after this person and I had shared a moment of just tender vulnerability. And I really feel that when I connect with anyone in that way that I, I just, this whole like, creation Space opens up, I'm like just touched by the sheer humanity of how someone can be vulnerable, and how I can witness that, or or respond to that, or be vulnerable with them. So, so yeah, that was that was it. It was written at kind of the beginning of um, a very vulnerable, beautiful love that I had that I no longer have. So it's been really interesting to also sit with a past experience that is now in the public eye, but for me happened
0: years ago so I I think about that too because I'm like also putting out music that has to do with things that happened like a couple years ago or a year ago and so I've had this thought too of how strange it is because even I as a consumer when I listen to someone's music about a relationship I just take it at face value I'm like this is what they're feeling right now like I could listen to a song that someone put out 10 years ago but because Mm -hmm. I'm listening to it right now and because it was recorded from this place of like vulnerability and presence I interpret it as like this is how they're feeling right now and so I did think to myself like how strange it is when you put music out about Mm -hmm. a past experience knowing that people who are going to listen to it even if they're aware of this will still in the moment like associate that emotional experience to like reflect what you're currently feeling as a person and like but it speaks like the timelessness of music in a way like I think if you wrote a really good song that's probably a compliment that people find it so believable that like they assume you're feeling that right now because it just sounds so like raw and like real.
1: I know. And it can be, I mean, it could be a blessing and a curse. Like on one hand, I'm like, great, I gotta carry all these ghosts of my exes with me at all times till the end of time. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, like I think there's a beauty in, in having that connection to, you know, we are every age that we'll ever be in a sense, like we hold all those experiences and to realize that, oh, maybe this song will actually mean something different, mean something different to me in a few years time. And I've already began to almost reinterpret it as, as being vulnerable with myself, like a love for self and, and trying to to just be fearlessly honest in my like solo intimate spaces. So, so yeah, this process of redefinition has been really important to keep the songs living uh, past like one month on my hard drive. <laughs> And this one I brought to life further with um, I did a little bit of co-production actually quite a bit of co-production with my friend Rafa Aslan who's just an amazing friend and I consider him to be like one of my production mentors he's just incredible so to have it take another life with that person like after I wrote the song for you know someone who's not in my life anymore it evolves
0: yeah that's the beautiful thing about making art Um, yes we're almost out of time but my two closing questions, you know, the first one would be what's next for you. And you mentioned these two albums that you haven't released yet. Yeah. What's happening with those? What can we expect, Sarah?
1: For Any fans? of the viewers know how to release music in 2023. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I need, to, I need to spend more time with that. I've been really addicted to this, like, free-flowing somatic release. But releasing an album does not feel like that. Like, it feels like you oh, are... No. Administrative, like just exerting an incredible amount of administrative labor towards mm-hmm. something that you know actually these two albums they're very old one of them is i'll say this exclusive information uh shire album that was never finished it was never released so it's actually from 20, oh 2016 or 2017 like very old stuff but i reproduced it this summer with my friend uh, jack Broza, who's just an incredible producer living in new york um, mm. So I'm very excited about that. That's like Younger oh, self yes. Party. And I then the other that. one is like a large ensemble chamber jazz album that I did uh, while I was at McGill that again went through a reproduction phase after I graduated. So mm. um, yeah, two big, huge projects on the way and I'm yeah. super excited. I'm ready to just let go of them, but I don't know how. So I'm gonna be asking for a lot of help I think in the community. In the community. Oh yeah. Well, if
0: anyone hears this and is down yeah. to help Sarah. <laughs>
1: The links are in the description
0: you know where to go (laughs) yeah (laughs) and also i mean i just wanted to touch base on this like uh shire album so are you Mm re-recording parts of it right now as well or are you just sort of like working with what was already recorded and like producing that
1: it was a mix some of them were full band tracks that were pretty much done and just needed some more production and then some of them i had nothing but the song so i re-recorded all the vocals like created all these tracks Um, some of them, I just had vocal stems. So I, we built the whole track around, um, vocal stems that were years old. Now, um, it was a very interesting process of, it felt like reading an old diary where I kind of dug into this stuff that, you know, old sessions that hadn't been open since 2017. I was like an archeologist of, of feelings and realizing that a lot of the songs have similar, similar themes to stuff that I'm still going through. So it kind of speaks to this timelessness of, you know, we, we come into this world with these problems in limiting beliefs and we it's a lifelong process to work on them and so anyway it's been super healing and i'm super excited and it's some of us just like pure like pop bangers like could belong on top 40 really yeah. oh so much, <laughs> so much so much so much exciting so we got to get you some like marketing team for this oh i need to hear God. it that yeah yeah so it's like the idea is like a legacy project um <laughs> to celebrate younger self and to to celebrate kind of the the contributions of this younger group of people who were just prematurely silenced by the mm. by the industry so I'm seeing it as a celebration and also as part of this snowplow um, <laughs> motivation yeah. Pursuit, whatever yeah but the story of
0: it is so great too like just the fact that it's a project that you're revisiting you know years later and it's almost like this conversation between your previous self too like mm-hmm. I mean I know that not everything's about marketing but even on a marketing level that story is like could speak to so many people and so it would be like the best of both worlds in a way like it's a true profound vulnerable story that at the same time gives the project a really cohesive and like beautiful Mm. message and brand you know
1: right Um, so I think like when we're being really authentic and clear about that stuff I would hope that the branding just figures itself out Totally. A message that's very, very clear. I think people will will respond to it, and I hope that it just you know even if it inspires like one, like emerging like non male band to keep going from reading the story. I think that will have it'll have done its duty. <laughs> so I'm yeah I'm yeah. very excited about that. You're actually this is the first your first person I've told publicly about this. Oh my this gosh! Of, of Hot exclusive. <laughs> i know oh my gosh i don't know this scarcity or the secrecy of like hiding information feels yeah silly to me at this point like
0: yeah especially like the age of like open book social media yeah like no rules type of land it's just Mm -hmm. but i think you're right i really truly profoundly believe i use so many like adverbs there so you know I, i believe it I hope that that was the right word I'm an English major so I, I should know this <laughs> but like whatever point you. is I truly believe that uh you can do authentic marketing and that marketing is not inherently a bad word and that in a way you can actually be artistic and creative in your marketing attempts and make marketing and social media promotion a form of art like it doesn't have to be
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know cookie cutter branding like mm, I think there's a yeah. A unique way to do it I mean I'm still figuring it out but I think it's possible
1: and I think we're moving in that direction too like with you know TikTok has a lot of a lot of stuff on it but the idea of just kind of phone up camera talk to the people like nothing fancy nothing like over I mean there's obviously still very very produced content on there but like there's something very humbling and humanizing about just being like here I am I'm doing this thing like uh, yeah. I still don't feel comfortable doing that but maybe at some point I will <laughs> Uh, but it's yeah. kind of liberating to to not see the internet as like, now I make this big statement. More so like it feels like being in New York where it's like you could be laughing and crying on the streets and no one will really pay attention because it's such, yeah. a, such a storm down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but even if one person notices, then then great. Like that's, that's awesome. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: not great if you're crying on the streets. <laughs> I've done it a few times. Yeah. But, um, the idea of of like you know it's such a um, a space with this high moving current and if you say something like it doesn't really matter at the end of the day so yeah. that helps you go chill out a little bit when i'm trying to promote something like,
0: yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah i think it's probably like le- it comes less naturally to sort of um zillennial or like mm-hmm. millennial uh, yeah. people than gen z it just seems like they just innately can do it. I mean, yeah. I say that, but, like, my little brother is full Gen Z and, like, he he doesn't like that kind of thing. So maybe scratch everything I just said. What do I know, mm-hmm. you know? But it's taken a learning curve for me for sure to learn to sort of, like, be comfortable, like, even just posting stuff more than once a year.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like I'm
0: constantly out of my comfort zone right now, like, all the time in trying to sort of be active to promote my creative work but like also create stuff that isn't just doesn't just feel like i'm like clogging up the social media algorithm with more like self-serving material like it's just such a sticky sticky situation but let's not dwell on that (laughs) because (laughs) we're almost out of time so um where can people find you follow you to keep in touch with what you're doing
1: Time to promote myself. Um, my go. hand will be tied in this, but... You can do uh, this. God, <laughs> Please. Uh, A-R-A underscore O-S-S-Y. Ara Rossi. It's like a haircutted version of my name. Um, and yeah, I have a website, com. I need to update that. But if you go visit it, it's there's some stuff. There's some stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I have a few things on streaming services, as you noted, as you noted uh, the song... Hidden Heart, which came out a few months ago, I have so much stuff in the queue. So uh, if you if you are curious to hear about all my feelings, twenty twenty four is going to be the year of release uh, for oh, a yeah. lot of music, like probably kind of embarrassing amount of music that's just been <laughs> backlogged forever. There's no such um, thing, but yeah, that's that, that's me.
0: <laughs> Yay! Well, I'll put all that in the description too. But um, but yeah, oh, thank you so much for being here and all these insights.
1: Please come to Montreal soon. It would be so great to see you. Yes.